Good morning to you. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dave Jacobson, and I'm one of the pastors here, and so uh, looking forward to opening God's Word together. Uh, I want to also extend my thanks, as uh, Bree said, to the many of you that served and uh, were part of that trunk retreat last night. So fun. I always love seeing the creativity, some of the ideas that came out. It was fantastic. Um, I uh, I was impressed. So, and uh, I think some of you were at this service because you were thawing out after being. It was uh, it was cold. I think it was colder than we had thought. Um, I talked to many people. They're like, I didn't realize how cold I was until I got inside, and then I couldn't feel my hands, and and then I knew how cold I was. So, um, again, thank you so much for uh, being a part of that, and um, and uh, just looking forward to what God does as a result of just continuing to love and and um, connect with our community. Well, I'm excited to open up God's Word this morning, so if you have a copy with you, I'd encourage you to get that out. If you have a copy of Scripture, we're in uh, the book of John. Uh, we're in a series that we're calling Life in His Name. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, uh, you should be able to find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Um, I'd love for you to, uh, to grab that, and uh, you can use that. If you don't own a copy of Scripture, you are welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you, but I want you to see for yourself what we're looking at this morning uh, in God's Word. And uh, again, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, I'd love for you to uh, be able to get into that even during the week, and that you'd be spending your own time uh, in Scripture. Uh, but this morning, we're continuing our series that we're calling Life in His Name, and uh, they say that, I don't know how many times you have to repeat it, but they say you've got to repeat things a lot for them to stick. So you're going to hear me throughout this, this, this uh, series remind us of what the purpose is that we're getting after in this book, why we call it Life in His Name. Uh, the name's not original to us. It's actually John uh, states his purpose at the end of his gospel account. And he says that he has recorded the signs that we read in this gospel uh, so that we would understand that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by knowing and believing that, that we would find life in his name. So my guess is about chapter 12 or 13, if you continue to come with us, then you're going to be able to, like, you can say that as well. And you're going to know that as well. You'll, you'll be able to have that intro down. But I'm going to keep reminding us, this is why we're doing it. We're looking after life. And one of the things that we uh, think about oftentimes, I think in Scripture, we talk about life eternal, eternal life. We saw that in uh, chapter 3 just a couple weeks ago. It talks about eternal life. And a lot of times when we hear that word eternal life, we think about um, that it's a life that never ends. And that's true. That's part of it. Uh, but, but there's more to that word than just a life that never ends. Eternal life is not just speaking to the length, but it's also speaking to the quality of the life. And that quality of life begins here and begins now. And that's accessible to us now in the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're seeing. That's what we're uh, learning from uh, as we walk through John together. And so John chapter four is where we are at this morning. Uh, I want to kind of um, uh, set our, uh, our time this morning by um, uh, kind of telling a little bit of a story uh, the very first car that I ever owned, not the car, that, the first car I ever dro- drove, I had a few cars that my parents owned that I was able to drive, you know, as I was learning, and then um, kind of my years of high school, uh, I took my, um, or a lot of the driving I did was in a Suburban. I grew up with um, five, uh, five siblings, so um, I did lots of driving in a Suburban, but the first car that I ever owned was a 1996 uh, Volkswagen Jetta. Um, that's kind of the older body, so not the cooler, newer body, just the older, older body. And uh, I love that car. It was black. It was, it was cool. It was a um, stick shift. I love, love stick. If, if you can, yes, I hear a few amens in the crowd. Okay, yes, yes. Love stick shift. I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about our current society and culture and where we're heading um, just based on the fewer and fewer number of stick shifts cars available. But anyway, so we don't want to get too far off on that. But, but owning my very first car, I had heard something about this thing that's called the timing belt. I don't know if you know about this, um, there's a timing belt in, 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 in uh, especially manual uh, transmission cars, and it's a 
important. You need that thing. And, um, and after, like they just, eventually the timing belt breaks. And when the timing belt breaks, um, I'm telling you something I didn't know at the time. Um, when timing belt breaks, it kind of breaks your whole car. Like it, it just destroys the engine. Like there's not really much recovery after that. And so I kind of knew that that was a thing, but I didn't really know the extent to which the damage that it would cause or when exactly you needed to have it. So I had about 120, 130,000 miles on that thing. And um, if you know cars, you know that that's about the time when it goes. And so Bree and I were uh, on a bridge and we were coming to, getting ready to um, turn on the highway. I can remember the, the very bridge um, down in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we were on this bridge getting ready to turn on the highway. And then it just like, just stops like nothing. There's no, nothing, nothing happening. And that was the last moment I ever drove that car. Um, I, it was not, you know, repairable beyond that. And here's the thing about that timing belt is I didn't realize that if that went, that that pretty much, yeah, was the, was the nail in the coffin for the vehicle. And I didn't realize just how significant it was. I think if I would, if I would have truly known, I would have been able to address that. I would have taken care of, because what you do with the time belt, you just replace it. It's not, I mean, it costs a little bit, but it's, it's certainly a lot cheaper to do that than to replace the entire uh, engine. And, it, and it's not if the timing belt's going to break, it's when. It's like a certain, certain thing that's coming. And so you prepare for it by addressing it, fixing it ahead of time, kind of dealing with it. Again, I didn't know that was the case. I wish somebody would have told me. I share that story to sort of set up the text that we're looking at this morning. Uh, Jesus is going to have a, an encounter uh, with a Samaritan woman this morning. And what we're going to see is he's going to address something in her life. He's going to bring to attention something in her life that she maybe generally knew was a thing, but I don't think she knew the extent or the importance which this thing was going to have in her heart, in her life. We're calling the sermon this morning, Never Thirst Again. And that comes from this idea that I don't know if you can relate. I'm guessing you can but I, I believe that all of us are born with uh, some level of unrest, right? Like there's a hunger, there's a thirst for something that we can't quite find. If you've ever been sort of discouraged uh, by your current circumstances or a desire for more or, or even when things are going good, it still feels like something might be lacking. I think we can relate to that because there's this general unrest that we have. And rather than wondering kind of generally about that unrest, about that thirst that we kind of have, Jesus speaks to it directly and specifically. And, and specifically with this woman, he, he explains to her how she can satisfy this unrest that she feels. And so the big idea this morning, I, I like to do this because it helps to sort of frame up what we're going to see in God's word this morning, but to kind of put it in a sentence, it's this, uh, I can truly worship only when Jesus satisfies the thirst of my soul. I can truly worship only when Jesus satisfies the thirst of my soul. There is a thirst that our souls all have and long for, and that thirst is only satisfied in Jesus. And when that thirst is satisfied, then we can truly worship. We are made to be worshipers. We worship all the time. We've talked about this before. A good definition, if you're trying to understand the concept of worship, think about worthship. Worship is showing or displaying, uh, uh, revealing the worth of something. We can worship all sorts of things, right? Worship is not just the songs that we sing. It's worship. It's, and we worship all sorts of things. We're made to worship. But here's the reality of the truth that Scripture teaches is that we were made to worship the one who made us. 
And we can only truly worship, we can only truly worship him when we have been satisfied by Jesus down in the depth of our soul. So that's where we're going this morning. I think it's gonna be something that is for all of us. I don't think any, anyone in this room cannot relate to what we're gonna see in God's word this morning. So with that in mind, let me pray and then we'll get into our uh, passage this morning. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would, uh, God, that you would teach us, that we would hear from you, that we would see uh, what it is that you have for us in this passage this morning, in this encounter. And God, I ask that you would uh, just, um, God, direct our hearts and our thinking, Lord, our response, God, our actions. As a result, Lord, we pray that you would uh, be transforming and working in our heart. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the uh, passage together. This is what we like to do here at City on a Hill. Uh, we, uh, line by line, verse by verse, kind of paragraph by paragraph, we're working our way through the book of John. Uh, here's where we're at this morning. John chapter four, beginning in verse one. It says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had uh, heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, a little parenthetical note for us, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Uh, We're going to see many things about the way that Jesus works to satisfy the uh, thirst that we have in our souls. And here's the first one is this, is that Jesus meets us in the real parts of our life. Jesus meets us in the real parts of our life. Let's kind of walk our way through the text and see how we see this here. Um, It says that Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So the Pharisees kind of word had gotten back, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's, he's picking up some steam right? There's, some, uh, there's some, um, some following that is happening here. And so uh, when he heard that the Pharisees heard that, uh, he, it was time to move on to a different place. Now notice, um, it says that Jesus himself was not baptizing, though they believed that he was, um, but whatever stopped the truth from getting in the way of a good rumor, right? And so um, he needed to leave Judea and go again to Galilee. So he was in the southern part of Israel, and he's moving his way north to Galilee. And uh, notice it says he had to pass through Samaria. That's gonna be important for our text. You can underline that if you uh, write in your Bible. I'd encourage you to underline that line. Um, it's, we're gonna come back to that here um, in a second. But here's the thing that we see is that Jesus was on a mission. He had a purpose for what he was doing. And so he's moving from the southern part of the country and he is uh, moving to the northern part of the country from Judea up to Galilee and it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Now here's the thing that you have to understand about Samaria is um, most Jews, good Jews, uh, there was a conflict with, kind of a disagreement with Samaritans. And so uh, they did not go through Samaria. They didn't have to pass through Samaria. They would go out of their way to go around Samaria. Now it was quicker to go through Samaria It was uh, about three days' journey to go through Samaria. It was about six days' journey to go around Samaria. So how much do you have to not like someone to walk three extra days to be with them, right? Some of you, this time of year, it feels like, you know, stores start filling up already, right? We're approaching the holidays. You just have to park further and further back in that parking lot to, like, get your groceries. Some of you, you're like, that's okay. We don't need it. We can go without it. I'm, I'm not going to park in here. I'm going to walk out there, right? They're walking all the way around just to avoid that. 
Why? Well, there was some significant conflict between the, um, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. It says after uh, what, we, what we learn in history and through God's word is that uh, after the kingdom, the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC, the Assyrians deported the Israelites from their land and they resettled it with captives from other countries. Right? So you have some Jews remaining, but now there's these captives from other countries. When these captives came, they brought their own gods, their own worship with them. Against God's ruling and, and his direction for his people, the people of God, the Jewish people that were left, began to intermarry with these foreigners, with these, these, other, uh, these, these people worshiping other gods. And that wasn't necessarily the, the, the end or why God instructed not to do that. The result is why he was really worried about that. Because as a result of all of these, these marriages, now all of a sudden they're worshiping all sorts of other gods. And so now it's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's being worshiped in the land of Israel. Now it's Baal and many other false gods. And so this is, now it's kind of become this synchristic kind of mixed uh, worship. And so when the descendants of the captivity returned, what they found was sort of these um, half-breeds, right? Like sort of half-Jew, half-other uh, uh, nationality or, or, or ethnicity or whatever. That, again, that wasn't the problem. It was that the foreign gods, so now they're, they're at odds with them religiously and politically. That's what was going on there. And then the, 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 the conflict just continued. Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The Jews refused help from the Samaritans in rebuilding the temple. Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch and rejected the rest of the Old Testament. The temple, they built a temple at Gerizim which was then burned by the Jews in 128 BC. So all of this has taken place. So by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, I mean, we're talking generations and generations, hundreds of years of conflict and disagreement with the Samaritans. So there's this whole area where they were living there in the land. And it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Again, he could have gone around. Most Jews did, but he had to go through. Why? Because he came to do something. He was on mission. He had a mission that he was there to accomplish. And I think this is a good reminder uh, for us that there was nothing that Jesus was sent to do that he did not accomplish in his time here. Early in his ministry, he was establishing that he didn't just come for the Jews, but he came for the world. That's one of the things that's gonna become crystal clear as we walk through this passage this morning. Jesus didn't just come for the Jewish people. He came for the world. And so there was this divine appointment that he had to take. And I just love the fact that Jesus accomplished it all. Left nothing undone. I don't know how your days usually go. My days, usually I start with the to-do list. And by the end of the day, I have more on the to-do list than I started with. Anyone else? Can you relate? Okay, Jesus killed it all. He got all the to-do list done. Everything that was on that to-do list for his time, he got done. So he had to go to Samaria for this. Notice we get a little window into Jesus' humanity here. It says that Jacob's well was there, uh, so much there that we could kind of look at that we won't kind of dive into, but this was a historical place. This was a known context. There was history there uh, with it, but he came to J Jacob's well, and it says Jesus, look at verse six, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. Now we know that God, uh, Jesus to be fully God, but he was fully man, make no mistake. He was tired, he was worn out, he's hungry, and he needed to sit down. And so we just get to see these pictures of Jesus' humanity. How, how good is it that we have a Savior that we can relate to, that understands even just what it means to be tired and hungry and just worn out from a journey? 
And so he sat down and it says that it was about the sixth hour. Why would John record the time? Who cares? Like, what, what, why do we care? Well, that's an important point, right? John doesn't miss words. If you've ever studied this passage or heard it preached before, that, if you were hearing it in the day, you would have been like, wait a minute, like, the sixth hour? Because what happens next? It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Whoa, why would she do that? That's like saying, like, um, you know, she had breakfast at, at 2 a.m. Like, 2 a.m., what's she doing up at 2 a.m.? Like, why... You know, you just would have kind of asked some questions. Like, why, why is she there at the sixth hour? Six, sixth hour was noon. So you didn't come to the well to draw water at noon. In that region, in that part of the country, I mean, it would have been hot. And so that's not the time that you came to the well. You would come early in the morning or, or in the evening when it was cooler. And you would have come with like everybody kind of came together. All the women, all the children would kind of come together to the well and, and they would draw the water. Well, what we're gonna learn here in a minute is this woman, this wasn't by chance that she was there at noon. This, she was there at noon intentionally. She had no desire to be there when everyone else was there. So what we're gonna find out here in a minute is that she had a past. There was some shame. And she didn't wanna be there when all the other ladies were talking. She didn't wanna be there when all the other uh, conversation was going on because she didn't want that conversation to center on her and her life. I mean, she was there in a place with shame. She was hoping when she showed up that no one was there. And could you imagine her kind of confusion, maybe disappointment, as she walks up and she sees this man just sitting on the well. She's like, well, I'm all the way here. I gotta, I gotta get my water. Uh, so she approaches, she approaches it. And that's just a reminder for us that Jesus meets us in the real parts of life. I think it's, it, we could be uh, quick to kind of gloss over this, but, but the reality is, is that sometimes we think about the, our, our encounter with God or our encounter with Jesus as, as some religious sort of set-apart experience, right? That, that, that maybe, like that kind of happens here and then the rest of life happens over here. But here's what we see with Jesus, that he's meeting her in the real parts of her life, in a real time of need, in a real place of need, and he meets her. And if we had time, we could go around the room and many of you could share examples of when you met Jesus and he met you in the real nitty-gritty even difficult part of your life, right? He shows up in places that are, when, when real life is happening, it's not some removed experience. And so I think we just need to understand that Jesus is here to encounter all of us and all of who we are. And he meets us here in this place. It's not some disconnected experience, but Jesus is there to speak into the reality of our life and, and, and what we're experiencing and walking through. Let's continue on in the passage. Look at verse eight. It says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's there alone. And it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for, or ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given it you, living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Here's the next thing we see that Jesus does. He meets her in the real place of her life. Uh, He offers to us the real water we need. He's offering to her the real water that she needs. Again, this would have been uh, being in Samaria already, right? It was at odds with uh, the, uh, the, the people and kind of the customaries and the boundaries that he was already breaking with this. Well, now he goes even a step further. Now he's talking to a woman and he's talking to a woman alone. This would have been unheard of. This wouldn't have been, uh, this, this is not something that happened or was allowed here. And uh, again, not because it, it couldn't, just because that's what the culture had sort of said at this point. And so Jesus wasn't worried about that. He would push through those sorts of boundaries and, and prejudice and, 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 and some of those social norms. He was always pushing against any of those things that didn't conform with his pattern or his law. He was there for this woman. And notice she's kind of caught back. She said, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The reason that she was so taken back by him asking for a drink was because the custom of the day, not directly from God's word, but what has sort of been added to it was, if you were to put your lips to the cup of a Samaritan woman, Samaritan man didn't matter, man or woman, but a Samaritan, if you were to drink out of that cup, you were gonna be defiled for seven days You could not worship in the temple. You would have to go through some cleansing and rituals and all that. For seven days, you were unclean because of that interaction with the Samaritan's uh, cup or drinking cup. So the fact that Jesus is like, hey, can I have a drink of water? And by the way, he's not like barking at her. He says, give me a drink. Like, it it sounds really direct. It's, it's It's not being rude in that way or anything like that. He's asking for a drink. And so he asks for a drink. And she's like, how would you, and it says here, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Again, Jesus wasn't concerned with that. He was here for her. He was here to do something in her life. And what's he doing? He's offering her the real water that she needs. Notice what he says, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and then he would have given you living water. He's like, you don't know who's in front of you. You should be asking me for a drink. Why are you taken back that I'm asking you for a drink? You should ask me. And the woman said to her, sir, you have nothing to draw your water with and the well is deep. Where are you gonna get this living water? She's like, where's your bucket? I got a bucket. You don't have a bucket. Like, how are you gonna get living water with no bucket? Explain this to me. She goes on, right? She's like, are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who dug this well. He drank from it. It was good enough for him. It's good enough for his, his livestock. It's good enough for us. Who do you think you are, right? That's what she is saying. She's kind of caught off guard uh, by this. But here's the thing. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. She's thinking he's talking about something physical. And if he was talking about something physical, she would have been right. I mean, to this day, you can, the, the well is still there. It's over 100 feet to this day. It's about a half mile from Sychar. We're about as sure of this location as we are of any other place in the Bible. It's a well that's been dug out and it's fed by a fresh spring and to this day you can still draw water from it. So if it was like, needs physical water, yes, he needs a bucket. She was totally right if he was speaking on the physical, but she's not thinking on the physical. So when she asks the question, hey, where's your bucket and do you think you're greater than Jacob? His answer is like, yes and yes. Yes, I don't need a bucket because I'm the source. He's both the well and the bucket, and he is greater 
I mean, can you think about this for a second? Like, think about who Jesus is. We already read this in, in John, but John was there, or Jesus was there at the creation of the world. So he was there when those very rocks and formations were being put into place. He's watched from afar as that, like from heaven, as that well was being dug by Jacob. Could you imagine knowing the conversation that was going to take place as that well, like thousands of years later, that that well, he's like, I know who I'm gonna meet there someday and what's gonna happen there at that place. Am I greater than Jacob? Yes, for sure I am, is what he's saying, right? Like, who do you think? And this is all coming. There's a purpose here. Why? He says that everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's like, you're here to draw water. You're gonna need to come back here and draw water tomorrow. And you're gonna have to come back the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. Every day you are gonna need more water from this well. He's like, I've got living water that will make you never thirsty again. And what does she say? She's like, give me this water. I would love to not be thirsty and especially I would, not, I would love not to come here. Like I'm here at noon, right? I'm here at noon so that I don't have to run into anybody else. Like I would love to not have this be a regular encounter or sort of situation that I have. And some of you can relate to the shame. Some of you understand the shame or sort of the people or kind of situations that you avoid, right? I don't have to give a thousand examples to know like you can relate to this woman in that way. She didn't want to be in that spot because she didn't want to talk about her past and what she was dealing with at the moment. And so she's there in her shame and she's like, that would be fantastic. And he's like, no, you're missing it. You're missing it. What he's offering her is not is not a physical water. He's offering her a spiritual water, a living water that will satisfy her soul. And she thinks, she thinks that she needs something physical. She thinks that a physical thing is gonna satisfy that spiritual longing. And so here's the reality that you and I, we do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing, right? Do we not? We all, I said, I began the sermon saying we all have an unrest. There's a thirst, there's a hunger in our souls, looking, longing for something. And we, we are looking for this and where we're trying to get it satisfied, it's a spiritual unrest, it's a spiritual hunger. And yet we turn to physical, temporal things all the time to satisfy that. We do the exact same thing. We're like, maybe this well will satisfy. Maybe this well will satisfy. Maybe this thing will satisfy. What are the things? What are the wells? What are the things that we do? Well, for some of us, it's relationships, right? Some of us, we've, we've spent large chunks of our time. Maybe we're still in that place where we're running from guy to guy or girl to girl, and we're, we're, we're trying to find and satisfy this relationship, or it's friend groups or whatever it might be. Some of us, we're, the well that we're trying to find satisfaction for our soul is in our children and the lives that they're living and their upbringing. Others of us, it's our grandchildren and investing in them and that sort of thing. Others of us, it's, it's the status or, the, or the, the, the success at our, our job. Others of us, it's physical fitness or the body that we have and trying to maintain that and kind of keep that or, or all these things. It's the house we live in or the, 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 the kind of entertainment that we enjoy or, or different. I mean, we can go to all sorts of wells and what are we trying to do? We're trying to satisfy a spiritual longing with physical wells. We are just like this woman. And what Jesus is trying to say is he's like, that's not your real need. He offers to us the real water that we need. He's like, you're not gonna find it in that well. We keep going to the wells thinking it's gonna satisfy. And yet, what do we find? We find, that ourselves, we find ourselves thirsty again. Some of us, I think we might be tempted to think, well, I just need more of that, Right? Well, how's that going for you? Is another drink 
What you need is another relationship. What you need is another promotion. What you need is another like digit in your bank account. Is that what you need? Is that gonna satisfy? I think experience and conversation with others will tell the, a different story, right? There is so much that does not satisfy. Jesus is trying to say, listen, I have what you need. I have what will not bring you back, uh, not bring you back to this well again. I got a better bucket. I got a better well. I have living water. And here's the thing. She didn't even know that she had this kind of thirst, which is where Jesus goes next with it. Look at this, verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. What's he doing here? He's gonna expose her thirst. He says, go call your husband and come here. You're gonna see why. Why, why does he want his, her, her husband? Well, this would have been culturally and socially like normal. This would have been acceptable. Like, hey, if we're gonna talk about this, go get your husband and we'll talk together. And the woman answered him, I have no husband, which is a true statement. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. You've had five husbands, and you're living with a guy that's not your husband. What you've said is true. What's she doing? She's deflecting, she's guarding, she's protecting with the truth. How many of us are guilty of doing that, right? Sometimes it is way too risky to tell a lie. And so what do we do? We tell a different truth. Like what she said was true, right? How many times at small group, like, hey, how's it going? And you're thinking about the thing that you want to say or could say, but you don't really want to bring that up now or you don't really have the, like, is that really what I want to talk about? So instead of saying, yeah, everything's fine because it's not fine, so you can't lie, but you're like, well, I got this thing going on. And you talk about this other thing instead of talking about the real thing that you need to, you probably should be talking about. How many times do we do that? This is what she's doing. She's like, I have no husband. He's like, you're right, but you've had five and you're living with a guy. What that meant would have been shame. I mean, there would have been so much shame that this woman was living on. Let's come back to that in a second. Let me finish this. It says, she, she's, she understands. She's like, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Like, how could you know that? And so she asked a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Uh, many commentators think she's sort of like changing the subject or deflecting a little bit, right? We do this every time it kind of gets like uncomfortable. So how are you really doing? Man, I had a lot of hopes about Jordan Love, but <laughs> as weeks go on, it's just kind of, what do you think about that, right? Like, we, like as soon as like, like, oh yeah, well, we're on the topic of my, you know, my marriages. Why don't, why don't we talk about the Packers? Why don't we, yeah, let's just like bring that into it. So she's kind of changing the subject maybe, or maybe this is where she really needed to know. But either way, Jesus jumps on it. He's like, no, no, this is exactly where the conversation needs to go. We're gonna talk about worship. 10 times the word worship is used here. Jesus is all about it. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She's like, is this, is this mountain or in Jerusalem? Like, where should we worship? He's like, it doesn't, no, neither. Neither, the hour is coming when neither is where you will worship. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She said, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. See, here's what, what's happening here is that Jesus 
Jesus is in this conversation. He exposes for us the real thirst that we have. Jesus exposes the real thirst that we have. One of our problems is that we don't even know how thirsty we are. Right? I began by saying I didn't know that the timing belt was an issue. And I wish somebody would have told me because then I would still, well, probably not still, but I would have been able to drive that jet a little bit longer. It'd be awesome if I still had that thing. That'd be amazing. But nobody told me. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I, I wasn't aware of the problem. Here's the thing. I don't know that we're all aware of just how thirsty we are. And what Jesus is trying to do, he sees this in this woman. She doesn't understand her own thirst, and so he's trying to expose it. How does he expose her thirst? He goes to the most sensitive, needy, direct place that he can. It's in the string of relationships that she's had. You see, she's been married five times. Five times she's been divorced. Now, what you may not think about kind of in our culture, either the, you know, man or the woman, the husband or the, or the wife can, could, could initiate a, a divorce. And in that day, it would have only been the husband. And so I'm not saying that she was off the hook or she didn't do things to cause it, but basically five times, husbands have rejected her and, 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 and initiated and kind of completed this divorce. And so the place that we find her in is a place of total shame. Now she's in a relationship that the guy won't even commit Right? Like he's not even marrying her. He's just enjoying the benefits of it. And so he's living with her, but not married to her. And so that's a whole nother thing. And so that's why she's there at noon is because her life is a place of shame. She can't even address it. And what does Jesus want to talk about? He's like, let's talk about your husbands. Let's talk about your relationships. What's he doing? He's exposing her thirst by pressing on a spot that is sensitive and painful, not so that he can shame her, but so that he can heal her. There's a difference there. I don't know what I did. A couple days ago, I, I did something in my chest, and um, I assure you, it's not my heart, but like right here on this bone, it, like, it just hurts a lot. And I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting older, and so, um, yeah, we're all, all, all there. Some of you can relate. I don't know why, but it hurts so bad. And here's the thing. If you want me to punch you in the face, push right here, on my chest, and I will probably result, like, it hurts a lot. And, like, as I'm sleeping, I'm trying to turning over, whatever. So if you press here, it's sensitive. It hurts. I don't want anything to kind of push against that. That's exactly, I mean, he was pressing on something sensitive. Why? So that he could expose how thirsty she is. And here's what, here's what Jesus does to us all the time. He brings up, he goes to, he points to things that we need help in. She wasn't hiding anything from Jesus. The relationship she was in was sinful. He was fully aware of her sin. He knew about her past shame. And what does Jesus do? He cared for her anyways. He knew that when he began the conversation. Remember when it said he had to go to Samaria? He had to go to Samaria to meet with her. Like he was here for her. That's why he was at the well. And here's the thing. We cannot hide our shame from Jesus. You're not hiding anything. You might be hiding it from your small group. You might be hiding it from your spouse. You might be hiding it from some of your friends, your family, but you're not hiding it from Jesus. Jesus knows the shame or the, the discouragement, the sin that you carry. And he wants to expose it so that he can heal it and he can redeem it and he can work in it. That's what he's doing there with this woman. He's trying to show her just how thirsty she is. It's like, you don't even understand. And when it goes there, right? Like, 
I'm sure at this point, like there's a tissue box or something. Like, you know, it's like tears are flowing. It's this conversation. And she's like, you know, kind of changes that subject or whatever, you know, uncomfortable, kind of goes to a debate. Like, hey, where should we worship? Jesus lovingly engages the, cop, the conversation. And only in the way that Jesus can, as a tender shepherd, he points her to the core of what she's seeking. He's like, listen, you're trying to seek worship in this. These relationships, these husbands, he's like, you're trying to figure out where do I worship, Right? Where do, where, do, where do I bring like worth and value? And he's like, it's not a mountain. You're not gonna find it at the well. It is about knowing your heavenly father. Notice what he says here. He says, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. The hour is coming. It's now here where true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth. Again, she's staying on the external and the physical. It's like the well question all over again. And he's like, no, you need to know God as father. Like she's talking about our father Jacob and our fathers worshiped on this mountain and all that. He's like, no, no, you need to know the father. It's not this synchristic worship or, or something that's kind of gonna happen in both places or can both mountains work. He's like, no, no, you need to know who you're worshiping. How do you know who you're worshiping? You worship in spirit and in truth you understand the truth of how God has revealed himself in his written word. You see, it's more about spiritual realities than physical formalities. Like what we're doing when we worship, when we show worth, again, not just singing songs, when we're worshiping God, it's not about being in the right place, it's not about going to the right church, it's not about having the right posture or your hands raised or your hands not raised or how you look or what you're wearing or, or kind of where you're at. It is about what is happening in your heart. It's not about outward conformity. Worship comes from an inner, inward spirit. It's consistent with the word of God, what he has revealed about himself. You are worshiping God as he has told him or who he is, as he revealed himself to us. And what God has revealed himself to us is his spirit, and he's not confined to just one place. He's not like you and I. He's not a material being. That's why we don't put a picture of God up as we're worshiping, and we're trying to worship that. Why? Because any picture that we would try and put up would fall short of showing who he is. He cannot be captured in an image. That's idolatry. That's why he said, you shall have no graven image. You can't capture who I am in some image. It's a spiritual thing. And so we worship in spirit and in truth, but let's not take it too far. We're not worshiping some abstract sort of unknown concept of God, like some higher power or some higher being or some erythral feeling. We are worshiping the creator God who has revealed himself through his word. That is what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus is saying is when you satisfy the thirst of your heart, then you're gonna be able to truly worship. What are you doing with all these relationships? You're trying to worship, but you're worshiping the wrong thing. You need to worship the God who made you, your heavenly father, and then you will be able to worship in spirit and truth and your thirst will be satisfied. That's what he's saying. And she's like, I know the Messiah is coming. He who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. Well, hopefully the Messiah shows up and he can sort this all out for us because this, this is a lot, right? This is a lot. Well, check this out. What Jesus is doing here is he's convicting, not condemning. You have to understand the difference with that. Condemnation leads to shame, leads to discouragement, leads to depression. He's convicting, and there's a difference. John 3, 17, we already saw this. It says, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We are so quick to condemn, are we not? We're so quick to write people off, and Jesus is not condemning her. 
He is convicting her so that he can heal her. He is trying to expose the thirst so that he can satisfy it. He's not just throwing condemnation at her, which is what we do all the time. All the time. We can learn so much from Jesus here in this moment. All right, let's see what happens next. Let's continue on. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Verse 25, he who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. One of the most direct, straightforward revelations of who he is to the Samaritan woman early, early in his ministry. I am that Messiah. Verse 27, then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, why do you seek? Or why are you talking with her, right? They're kind of like, it's just sort of this awkward situation all around. They're like, ah, what's going on, right? So the woman left her water jar. I have that underlined in my Bible. That's important. John's trying to tell us something there. She left her water jar and she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Here's the thing that we see. Last thing, Jesus brings real life to this dying world. He brings real life to this dying world. Here's where we see the full purpose of this, in, this divine encounter. He is revealing himself to her as the Messiah that she is seeking after, looking for, that she is longing for. The Jews have been looking for the Messiah. The Samaritans have been looking for the Messiah. They kind of thought the Messiah was two different things. But what is Jesus saying here? He says, I who speak to you am he. It's the first and most plain statement that we see Jesus revealing that he is the Messiah and he says it to a Samaritan woman. And is that not the answer to all the questions she's been asking, right? Like she asked him, she's like, where's your jar? I who am speaking to you am he, right? I, I, I'm the jar. Are you greater than Jacob? Yes, I, I who speak to you am he. I, I am greater than Jacob. What mountain do we worship on? <laughs> I who speak to you am he. You worship me, Right? Where do I get this living water? I who speak to you am he. Like, he's like, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. And the disciples come back in the midst of it. And she's probably been crying and they're not saying anything. And it's just kind of this, this moment here. But I love it because it says like she left her jar and went away. The whole reason she came to the well, right? She came to get water. And she left with something so much better. She's like, I don't even need that thing right now. I got something, I got way more than I, I bargained for when I came here. And so she's bringing this back and she, she comes back with this message. She's like, come see this man. Could this be the Christ? He told me everything I've ever done. He revealed things about me that there's no way he could have known. He spoke to my heart. I think he's the Messiah. And she brought people with her. She gets it. She understands as she leaves that jar, it's not about the bucket of water. She went to the well for water. Instead, she met the well, and he offered to make a well within her. She left with the spring inside her soul. That's what he was trying to do. Come see this man. Could he be the Christ? She knows it, and she's been changed by him. And I wonder if you've made the same progression, right? You see, she realizes, recognizes, sees him as a man, then she understands he's a Jew. Then she sees that he's a prophet. Now she's declaring that he is the Christ. He's a man, he existed. Some of you say that. You're like, ah, oh, he existed. Some of you would say, yes, he's a Jewish man. He existed in, there's some historical validity to the accounts of Jesus. Others of you would say that he's a prophet and that he said some helpful things and said some challenging things. 
But I'm, I'm wondering, I'm questioning, I'm asking you today, would you say that he is the Messiah? Was he sent to save the world? This is where he's trying to get us to. He's trying to get you to this morning. And then we get this kind of insight into, I'm almost done, let's finish this up. We kind of get this locker room conversation with the disciples. Notice uh, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. They're like, Rabbi, eat. Like, hey, we brought food. You should probably eat it. You don't want to get hangry, right? I don't know if Jesus got hangry, but um, if he did, it was very pleasant hangry or, you know, whatever. Um, Don't quote me on that. That's not, that's not, that's not helpful. Yeah. So he said to them, he says, I have food that you, uh, to eat that you don't know about. And so the disciples said to him, has anyone brought him something to eat? Whoever was in charge of the food, I don't know, maybe it was Peter. He's like, wait, that was my job. Who brought him food? Like, I was the one, you know, like, we checked. Like, you know, DoorDash doesn't deliver out here. Like, how did he get food? Like, what's, where did he get this food? He doesn't, they don't understand. He's like, do not say. Uh, he said, no, he says, Jesus said to him, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say, are there not yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white to harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for the eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. There's so much here. We're not gonna dig into all of it. But let's get this, verse 37. It says, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He's like, you wanna know what my food is? My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And the will of the Father right now is to begin to reap the harvest. There are people here that need the hope, the truth, the life of the gospel. The fields are white unto harvest. And he's like, this is food enough for me. I am feasting on God and what he has done. This is the will of my Father. And look what happens next, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he did. So Jesus, hanging out in Samaria for two more days, right? Two more days he's hanging out there. The place that nobody wants to go, Jesus is there. And look what happens. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's not because of what you said that we believe. We have heard it for ourselves, right? Not just your testimony anymore. We see it ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. There's this revival breaking out right here in the Samaritan town. Like if you would have made a list of top 10 places, Jesus is gonna for sure visit on his like, you know, tour around Jerusalem as he's kicking off his, like, his you know, initial tour of, of ministry, you would not have put Sychar on the top of that list. And yet that is the place that Jesus for sure wanted to go and one of the very first places that he hits because there was a Samaritan woman there that needed to get the living water that he had to offer. It's amazing. It's amazing. He brings real life to a dying world. Listen, this is the life that we all desperately need. We have an issue. We have a problem. We have a thirst. And it's not gonna be satisfied anywhere else. We need to do a little inventory, a little check. Like, where are, what wells are we going after trying to satisfy this? I think we see this all the time, right? We see different places that we try and go. Um, some of you maybe seen the clip from, there's this interview that Tom Brady gave years ago, and he talked about, it was after he had won Super, Bowl, Super Bowls, he's like with the, you know, supermodel, and, and he kind of made this statement. He's like, yeah, I've got it all, but I still kind of want more. It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. I'm kind of paraphrasing. I mean, he's rich, he's popular, he's famous, he's successful, Right? In, every, in every sense that we would say, and here's Tom Brady saying, yeah, it, it wasn't enough for me. It's not enough. Just this week, I mean, Matthew Perry passed away. I don't know if you saw that. 
the reason I bring that up is because, um, sorry if you just now learned that, um, but the, the reason I bring that up is because he had a super troubled life. He, he released a biography several years ago, and he talked about his addictions and his depression and, and just these, and he, he started drinking when he was like 14, and he was addicted to alcohol, and he went to Hollywood. He said this in his book. He went to Hollywood thinking that that was going to fill the hole in his void in his life that alcohol had not yet been able to do. And when he became sex successful, right, friends? Like a few of you have heard of that. And so he became a successful actor and he has this popularity and this fame. It still wasn't there. And then his life was just one of just tragedy and just like, again, how many examples or stories could I tell you from famous people or people that like have everything, that have gotten it all and it still isn't enough. It doesn't satisfy it doesn't satisfy. We have a thirst in our souls that we are longing to be filled and it's only filled by the living water that Jesus Christ can offer. I've shared this example before, but it's so good, I need to share it again. I'm gonna kind of paraphrase. But C.S. Lewis writes something like this. He says that, you know, because there is desire, it, it, it shows what that desire kind of longs for, that, that it's there. So what he says is like, because I'm hungry, I can, I can be, that hunger is satisfied by food, right? When I'm tired, uh, that satisfaction comes through uh, sleep, right? If I'm bored or, you know, I'm kind of making it my own, like if I'm bored, like I can, I can be entertained. I can find something to, to distract me or kind of take my attention, right? Every longing that I have has something that meets that longing. Like there's, there's something that it's meant in. And then what he says is that if, if there is to be a found a longing that nothing in this world satisfies, the only logical conclusion is that we were made for another world. Right? That there is a longing in our heart that cannot be satisfied by this world. That there is something else out there. And that's exactly what our souls are saying. We are all, at some level, experiencing unrest and dissatisfaction and thirst and hunger. And we try and find it all the other ways. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, I've got what you're looking for. It's me. I am the living water. I offer it to you freely. I offer it as a gift. And that is what Jesus did. He came to save the world he lived a life that was perfect. He went to the cross. He died. He paid the penalty through his own death, a death that you and I deserve. And he was buried and he rose three days later and he is seated on the throne. He is the Messiah. He came to save, seek and save this lost and dying world. He brought the hope that we are longing for. Listen, church, we need this time and time and time again. Is this a new message? Is this the first time I've ever preached something like this in this pulpit? No way. Is this gonna be the last time? No way. You're gonna hear more of this like next week and the week after. Like we need this over and over again. Why? Because tomorrow you're gonna go out with your bucket. You're gonna be like, I'm going back to the well and I'm gonna, you're like, it's not gonna satisfy. I'm just telling you, it's not gonna satisfy. You need to go to the source, the place that you can find living water and that is in Jesus Christ alone. We all have this issue. We all have this thirst and it is satisfied only, only in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reality, the truth of who you are. And God, many in this room have embraced by faith you as Messiah. God, you as Savior. Jesus, you as the only way of salvation. Lord, I pray that if there's any here today who have not yet received this gift of life, this living water that you offer, that they would receive it freely from you today. Lord, it can't be earned, it can't be bought. It can't be given by anyone else but by you. Lord, you are giving it freely today. And so, Lord, we receive it. We thank you for it. 
God, we acknowledge that there are places, there are times that we seek for other things, God, other things to satisfy in our hearts and in our souls. Lord, we find our full satisfaction, everything that we long for in you. Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have worked and that you are working. And Jesus, we receive from you today the living water, God, that you offer in yourself. Jesus, we give you praise, we give you thanks. In the name of your son, amen.